Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. I've had some allergies over the course of the weekend this weekend, and I've uh, been sort of fighting off that whole allergy thing. So I know, Matt, you struggle with that too, hey, from time to time? Um, Well, I don't have any allergies per se, although... Well, this is going to get into personal territory because I was telling Chris. Um, so we normally do a, a Zoom meeting between the three of us here on the show. Um, mm-hmm. And there's some technical problem with my my camera on my computer. But um, I've been having an issue with my eyeball just leaking fluid. And oh, uh, so I look kind of messed up right now. So I'm actually glad I'm not on the camera. The uh, maybe it's one of those things. Maybe maybe it's allergies. I'm not allergic to anything, say the doctors, but I'm like intolerant to everything, so it drives me crazy at times. Anyway, I'm sure uh, the audience has much worse allergy experiences than mine. <laughs> the the ears better, but the eye is leaking. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what happened. Maybe all your your ear poison, your brain poison, leaked into your eyeball. <laughs> it makes sense, you know. It's on the other side, but that oh, makes really? sense. I'll sleep on the other side tonight and maybe see what happens. I'll see what happens, yeah. That's what happens. Gravity, maybe. 877-399-9898. Your calls, your text messages. It's a great way to welcome Greg Fish to the show. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Good. How's your eyeball? Is it leaking? No, not not yet. I mean, depends on what we're going to talk about, but uh, generally it's dry. Okay, good. Uh, you're okay, by the way, with all the fires down in uh, California, are you? Yeah, I'm not on fire yet. Uh, usually the, around the L.A. area, uh, November is probably the worst month, like end of October to the like middle and end of November. That's that's when you get the, the worst risk around really, here. Hey? So I have that to look forward to. Just, uh, you know, having a great 2020 like everyone else. Yeah, is it as hot? Was it as hot there as everyone was talking about at your place today? Because there was that record of 49.4. Yeah, that was yesterday, and uh, let's just let's just put it this way: it was like walking into a convection oven. Uh, it's really not fun. Like after you after you get past forty five degrees, when you get a nice breeze, it's not refreshing. It's just hot, and it's like you you walked out into an oven, and there's a fan blowing in, like a hot fan blowing in your face. It's not, it's not fun. I've never experienced. Uh... I've experienced like 40 degrees, above 40 degrees with a Humidex. I've experienced pretty darn close to 40 degrees. I have never experienced anything that hot. And for like when you say above 45, like when it gets starts getting above 45, it's like that's just so foreign to me. Um, I can't even imagine how hot that would feel. Man, it, like well, you have to have like air conditioning. Said- well, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, if you if if you want to do that, just uh, you know, an oven is the closest comparison I can give you. That's amazing. All right. Uh, Worldofweirdthings.com is where you can find Greg Fish and all of the things that he has going on in the world. Now, you were sort of struck as we're coming into Labor Day this weekend, Greg, about jobs and opportunities in some of the some of the tech sector, because your background is more tech than just sort of weird stuff, too. Right. Like you kind of come from that background. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I write code more than anything else. Really? So. 
Now, it seems appropriate on, you know, the Labor Day weekend here in Canada to talk about exactly that. So where does this land with you? What inspired you to talk about the opportunities and what's missing in in the land of code? Because I think that you're right. I think that when we talked about it, there's more people misunderstand what that means. Really, yes. And what what really kind of inspired me is that you have a lot of politicians anytime you ask them about you know jobs and and the economy especially right now with covid just really battering a lot of careers especially in in hospitality and retail and uh and restaurants uh, and you have people wondering well what can i what can i do uh, to make my career more secure. Plus, it's kind of the, usually the start of people going back to schools and colleges. Um, and I get a lot of questions from people asking, well, is, should I, you know, try coding? Because that seems to be working out well, really well for everybody. I mean, it's, everyone's looking for programmers and the pay is good and there's a lot of career advancement. So all I need to do is, you know, start writing code and I'll have a job, right? And the answer is a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, so I thought maybe a good idea to kind of explain uh, what this job actually entails and, and what the demand actually looks like and some of the interesting gotchas about it. I sort of imagined if you throw back to the Hollywood movies of the receptionists or I guess what we would call data entry of the day, uh, you know, banging away on typewriters. How many words per minute can you type? That's, I guess, what I imagined coding to be like for for so many people. Is it like that? No, not at all. Uh, I would say it's a it's a combination of a lot of uh, of a lot of research and a lot of reading and a lot of googling uh, and not actually that much writing. The whole point of coding is to solve problems. And you're not just typing code. You're not just writing code for the sake of writing code. That code actually has to fulfill a function. It has to be done right. It has to be reusable. It has to be maintainable. There's a lot of principles that you need to learn and understand uh, in order to write decent code. Because the vast majority of coders are not working on small apps. They're working on very large enterprise systems that are written by teams of, uh, of hundreds if not sometimes thousands of programmers, sometimes across the world, um, projects that take, you know, five, ten years to come to fruition. Uh, and a lot of the pieces that are being delivered by individual coders have to all fit together at the end, and they all have to abide by the same principles. There has to be someone who sets the template, and this is how it's all going to work, and this is how it's all going to look, and this is why this happens. So there's there's really a lot of research that's involved, a lot of problem solving, a lot of uh, just really in-depth understanding of what the problems are and how to fix them correctly and in a way that's maintainable and really readable by everyone who's going to come after you because that code might live for, you know, another 20, 25 years. So one of the things I didn't understand, and I've never understood in that, is that there are different, you know, coding languages that are out there. And then there are hackers that sort of manipulate the code in a good way to make it do new things. But what I don't understand is that how is it possible for there to be the language and then someone who, you know, makes it do different things because isn't it just a series of commands and things like how does that work because if you learn the language then you can code but then somebody already did that so how are you pioneering new stuff it's really just and it's in a different language because it, it well let me let me backtrack a little bit um 
when it comes to programming languages, there's something like 9,000 programming languages. And we don't really use all 9,000 programming languages. There's actually probably, you know, a dozen or so languages that are most commonly used across different platforms for different reasons because they have their all, they all have their advantages and disadvantages. And um, when it comes to people who mod or manipulate things, uh, they usually can do that by building new stuff on exposed endpoints in that code to try and make it do new things. Uh, or they can introduce their own little mini programs into it. Or they will just use the same language that was used by original creators and extend what's already there uh, by taking code that's publicly available or that has been published or open sourced. Uh, and just go from there. So I imagine it to be an awful lot like, you know, like a microchip. You know, how do you build a microchip to do things that people haven't written it to do yet? I mean, this it's almost like I'm trying to compare bananas and tires here. Like it just does not, excuse the pun, compute for me that how this works. So what do you say to a, a person who's thinking, okay, I've spent my life driving a truck. Uh, you know, I would like, I like computers. I don't know, really know where to start, but they might be thinking about it kind of like Shane does, where it's like, this makes no sense to me. How can you have a physical device thing that does things that nobody's even figured out what to do yet? Well, believe it or not, I've actually had that conversation a lot, specifically with, believe it or not, truck drivers who are wondering, well, are they going to make all the trucks drive themselves? And if so, what am I going to do? Um, should I, you know, learn how to code or, or what? And the answer is... It's not really that simple because when people say, well, maybe I should learn how to code, the question is why? What is, what is actually the imperative? Are you trying to learn how to code so you're, because you're hoping that you're going to have a different job? Or are you learning how to code because you want to solve a particular pro problem? Or are you learning how to code just because you want to? Um, and there's a big difference between the three. Part of it is that uh, a lot of people who are coding, uh, they tend to be a little bit on the younger side, to be just completely frank. And part of it is because there's just a lot to learn and there's a lot to constantly learn. You know, this is a, this is a job where you consistently have to improve your skills when you have to consistently learn new things. Otherwise, uh, you're going to fall behind. And if you fall behind, then you're going to be stuck on projects no one wants to work on. And eventually when those get cut, you do too. Um, and then for people who, are trying to transition from different careers, the big question is, how is that transition going to be managed? Because sure, they could, you know, learn how to code a little bit on their own and go to like a tech elevator or something and, and learn a little bit more formal skills and start applying to different companies. But the question is, how much choice are they going to have in their area? Will it need to relocate because a bigger city or a bigger hub is going to have more such jobs simply because you're going to have more of an industry there uh, that's going to have varied needs. So banking, insurance, healthcare, um, they're going to have a lot of needs. They're going to have, uh, they're going to have to use a lot of software there to keep track of a lot of data and a smaller area that doesn't maybe need that many technical tools can probably buy what they need off the shelf and they just need someone to maintain it. So then what's going to happen is these people are going to be competing all over the world for essentially gig work designing websites. And a lot of times they're essentially just building fancy WordPress templates. And the question is, is that is that really what you want to do? Is that really going to be lucrative for you? Uh, is that something you can really you can really make work. And um, that has been tried in, in Appalachia in the United States, has been tried in, in West Virginia. 
specifically, there have been a lot of problem. There have been a lot of programs that essentially said, "Well, you know, you used to mine coal or drive trucks, and we can teach you how to become a coder." And none of them have really worked out. You know, over the years, there's been, you know, less than a hundred people who found gainful employment as programmers, and the rest have had to do something else uh, for a whole variety of reasons. But the biggest one being that. They needed to be somewhere else in order to apply these skills that they've learned, and in uh, and there's also the issue of people coding but not really picking it up because it is really complicated, and you have to have a certain mindset to really succeed in it. Okay, so in an effort to not sit on the fence, because I mean there really is opportunity to create and be able to do things. I hear that, but at the same time, I hear very clearly that it's not for everybody. Don't get sucked into it. It's not just the be all end all for anybody who's ever you know worked a, just a, a typical day job. That's that's really true, and it it all depends on your specific circumstances. It all depends on what you want to do and why you want to do it, um, and it. It, like I said, it also depends on your mindset. If you're a very logical person, if two, if two and two always have to add up for you, if things always have to be consistent for you, then you will probably do quite well. If you're a very artistic person, an impulsive person, and you just want to create and try new things and experiment, it can work for you, but it may not actually work well for you as a job. It may be work, it may work for you as a research hobby. It may work for you as, as, as a useful additional skill on top of your existing job, but it might not be a great fit. It really all comes down to what do you actually want to do with your life and why you know what 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 do you think your calling is and maybe your calling isn't necessarily to sit there and and debug programs for you know a week to get something that you made a typo and and can't seem to find for who knows how long um maybe that's just not for you but people like me yeah i i'm willing to do that. I'm one of those people who's like, if I can't make something work, I'm going to storm it again and again and again until I find a way to make it work because that's that's what really gets me excited. That's what really gets me going. Uh, it's great. I, it's very specific. Greg Fish, um, worldofweirdthings.com. There it is. I mean, if you've been thinking about, maybe I should learn about the computers. Maybe I should dig into that. There are many different levels to this. Uh, there are just the guys that can just sort of use other people's code and put it to work. And then there's people that want to actually create it and so much more. I think it's very clear. It's a, it's a neat perspective to take on Labor Day up here uh, for us, Greg. Thanks so much, man. Always a pleasure. And, you know, I encourage everyone to try it, but just don't don't get upset if you if it's not for you. If it's not for you, just take whatever you can from it and, and figure out what it is that you want to do and how to apply it. It's beautiful. Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. Thanks, Greg. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Are you okay with having a sewage plant named after you? <laughs> I would. Uh, I would like maybe a library would be all right. The the the, uh, the, hmm. the Shane Hewitt sewage plant. <laughs> the Chris Gilbert plant for human waste. <laughs> the Matt MacArthur. Right. A uh, dump repository. <laughs> oh, there it is, man! Oh, yeah, man. I like it. All right, it's got a, it's well, got a ring to it. It does. It did d- d- dump repository. That's a long sign, but I think it's all right. The mayor of Danbury, Connecticut, Mark Botton, is offering to name its new sewage treatment plant after John Oliver. 
following the comedian's tirade against the town for racial disparities uh, in jury selections on his late night show. This is how John Oliver responded to Mark Botton, suggesting that they should name the sewage plant after him. Well, let's get down to some brass tacks here, because I've got a very serious proposition. I will donate $55,000 to charities in your area, and I will happily do all of that if, and only if, your mayor makes good on his promise to officially name that sewage plant after me, because I want this. I need this. So, to you, Mr. Mayor, I say this. You have exactly one week to respond to this offer, and please, I beg of you, don't Danbury this one up. <laughs> is there any better way to call a bluff than to say, well, tell you what, I'm going to give money to your charity if you actually follow through. I think that's genius. I love that guy. Oh, yeah. I've always got time for John Oliver. That is really funny. In follow-up uh, to that in his one week and his $55,000 donation, the mayor has agreed to take up John Oliver's offer, of course, because he's a politician with conditions. Hi. I'm Mayor Mark Bouton from the city of Danbury, Connecticut. You know, Danbury has a lot of incredible assets. We're one of the safest cities in Connecticut. We're a great place to do business. One of the most diverse cities in the United States of America. But we also have this wonderful, beautiful $110 million sewer plant. John Oliver, we've thought about it. And we're going to take you up on your offer. $55,000 if we name this plant after you. However, we do have one very specific condition. You must come here to Danbury and be physically present when we cut the ribbon. And I gotta tell you, $55,000, it's a little light for somebody in the 1%, but a deal is a deal. Now, should you choose not to take us up on this offer, well, I gotta tell you, I'm already talking to the two Jimmies and to Noah, but I also got something else for you. We certainly have something we've named after you, your own personal porta potty, the John Oliver house. So, Mr. Oliver, come on up to Danbury and sit on your throne. <laughs> this guy's a bastard. I love it. The John like, Oliver. What a John. jerk, hey? Oh, I, my God. I bet you the people in his community are so proud of him right now. Like, he's but just got to be right. I think that John Oliver might have finally got himself like a little bit too deep in the proverbial you know what because like he always like he used to get himself quite involved in like new, Ze new zealand stories as well under the last government the john key government there was this one incident when um our minister of economic development stephen joyce had um a projectile thrown at his head and it smacked off his head and that projectile was a sex toy and it uh okay. it bounced and like it flubbered around and bounced off his head or wobbly like flubbered. And, <laughs> you know, well, you, you get the idea. And, and I did so get Stephen, the idea. It was a very good word. <laughs> so Stephen Joyce went on Twitter. Was like, someone send John Oliver the clip so we can get this over and done with. And John Oliver responded by uh, having a, a bunch of uh, dancing, you know, what's dancing around the set, uh, while like a montage of those things smacking into Stephen Joyce's face played in the background. He always gets himself involved in this stuff, so I reckon he might have lost this time because he has to be there at the town that he was making fun of and criticizing for having racial disparity in, in jury selection. So well, I don't, I don't know what fun he's going to do. Town, right? Yeah, I, well, I, I would suggest yeah. he shows up. I mean, if, if he think of it this way, if he shows up based on the attitude of that mayor, I mean, that, like, that statement, his response statement, I mean, that's an ass statement. It's terrible. Yeah. 
I mean, you're, you're basically saying, look, I have a chance to get 55. He calls his bluff. I have a chance to get $55,000 for local charities. And you're going to put more conditions on it to prove that you're right. And then to insult him and saying $55,000 is light for the 1%. Like, that's dreadful. I, if I, if that, my mayor did that, that's, that's, oh, it's pretty embarrassing. It's By the way, it's terribly embarrassing. He's going to hang himself. Like if, if, if John Oliver goes there, that mayor is going to screw himself worse. I've thought of a new one. Hmm. The Chrissy G dump and pump. <laughs> gold. That's gold. Chris. Oh my God. Whoo. Um, why not name uh, a uh, sewage treatment plant after me? Uh, proves texture says that you can take a lot of crap from anyone. My body is a temple. Ancient, crumbling, and probably haunted. <laughs> nice. Thanks, D-Wayne. I like that. All right. Uh, are you okay? Um, oh, wait. Say, did I miss something here, Chris? Oh, no. There it is. Are you okay with drinking toilet wine roadkill beer? Are you okay with drinking toilet wine roadkill beer? Uh, you know, I... Pride myself on being open-minded when it comes to beer, and I think I've found one that I will never ever touch. Well, wasn't there a um, there was a brewery in Canada? I believe it was in Calgary that was working on recycled water from a treatment plant in its beer from the Hewitt uh, treatment plant. Hey now, (laughs) (laughs) you. I, I actually missed something, which is the word or. So it's uh, to- toilet wine or roadkill beer. Um, yeah. Uh, mm, I think I would take some convincing. I mean, probably not the toilet wine. It depends if it was a used toilet and how well it was cleaned. Roadkill beer. It was that beer made out of roadkill? Still no. Mm. I don't know. Discussing Foods Foods Museum in Malmo, Sweden, Sweden uh, has disgusting alcoholic drinks on exhibit. Now you can smell the drinks. Oof! I would ya, but not yeah. drink the drinks. Thank God, uh, it is a museum after all. Vodka made with scorpions may be the least disgusting thing at a new museum exhibit in Sweden. It's part of the latest show at the Disgusting Food Museum featuring disgusting alcoholic drinks. Well, we started by researching all the kinds of different alcohols that are considered disgusting around the world. We're talking wine fermented with spit and a 110 proof beer from Scotland that rests in a roadkill squirrel. Then there's wine made in a toilet as well as rice wine made with baby mice. According to a museum curator, smell is in the nose of the beholder. We grow accustomed to certain things uh, when we grow up. We are indoctrinated into thinking certain things should be delicious, and everything that doesn't really fit that mold is deemed disgusting. Uh, And it's the same for alcohol, just like with food. Some of these concoctions may seem to be more trouble than they're worth and much grosser too. So why bother? People are very desperate to get drunk around the world. So whenever we find ourselves in a situation where there is no alcohol, we get quite inventive. And we've been doing this for millennia. 
Uh, we've been chewing corn and spitting out to start fermentation processes to make uh, wine thousands of years ago. Uh, when the Soviet Union banned alcohol or tried to lessen the alcohol consumption, people started drinking perfume and lotion and varnish. So it's something that a lot of people are addicted to. And uh, even if they don't have a, a medical addiction, they really want it. They can't really stand being without it. So people have been uh, very inventive when it comes to finding out new ways to make alcohol. The disgusting alcohol exhibit at the disgusting food museum will be smellable for the next three months. So, okay, I don't care what psychology he puts behind it. Um, there is no way that uh, just because we think something is good, we don't recognize it. We think it's disgusting because this list is disgusting. Sold. 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 Yeah. Sold. Yeah. Okay, here's the list. Yeah. Spit fermented wine. Liquor Sold. fermented in prison toilets. Ugh. Delicious. Strong Scottish brew inside a taxidermied squirrel. Oh, Two, interesting. Please. Two, please. <laughs> uh, I don't think you drink it out of the squirrel. That'd be weird. An ancient Korean beverage concocted for medicinal purposes from fermented child's feces and rice. Dude. Dude. That one needs a chaser. Chica de Murkmuko, which is spit fermented corn meal beer from Peru. I think I've actually had that. Ugandan gin made from fermented bananas. Okay, I would do that. That's like That's the fine. least disgusting thing on this list. Yeah, it sounds delicious. Icelandic beer made with whale testicle that's been smoked in sheep's dung. Oh. That, that's some they just try just trying too hard, I reckon. Yeah, that there's yeah, that they they tried really hard to get for the gross out factor on that one. Mm -hmm. Wow, or, I mean that's like, well, what do we got left in the fridge? Well, we got this whale nut and some sheep poop. <laughs> <laughs> Leftovers. <laughs> Leftovers. Uh, Texter Derek says, is this like the Martian poop or pirate piss sodas that you can get at Rocket Fizz Soda Shop in Edmonton? I don't know. <laughs> That's new to me, Derek. I'm going to have to take your word on that and uh, let you know whether or not they're good. Thank you. Uh, let's get ourselves into one more Are You Okay? Are you okay with a gender reveal party? And the reason why I say it that way is because their texture says a very good point. It says gender reveal. Let's call it what it is, a genital reveal party. It's hey. not, I mean, gender, in today's world, right, genders are fluid. So it is really a, it's a, it's a junk party. That's a good point. So in that case, I'm not okay with a gender reveal party. Get with the right. times. Yeah, get with the times. Um, this, to finish the, the, for the sake of being clear on the text, I've seen so many of these things go wrong. Um, thank you, Reddit. Why can't people just have a baby shower? Where did these uh, sex reveal party things come from? Well, so, they've seen so many things go wrong. What, what goes wrong? How well, apparently, wrong? <clears throat> insert great timing, um, one of the multiple wildfires burning in California was started from a gender reveal party, officials said. A smoke-generating pyrotechnic device uh, used at the party sparked the El Dorado fire in San Bernardino County. Uh, here's the audio from KTLA 5. Now, as of tonight, this blaze has grown to more than 7,000 acres with just 5% containment. Investigators say they now know the cause. Someone set off some sort of pyrotechnical smoke device, some sort of firework, 
at a gender reveal party. That sparked the flyer that spread north to the Yukaipa Ridge and is now threatening these communities. The extreme heat and low humidity is adding to the challenge. Residents tell us they've been up all night watching the fire, hoping it would spare their homes. I've been watching this fire, first of all, for the last two days, watching it grow. I never thought it would come as far as it did, and all of a sudden, it was leaping towards my home, and the, the uh, fireman was knocking on the door for me to get out. I had to leave my cats, I grabbed water in my purse, and I went. So um, since then, I've been in the parking lot, praying without ceasing that my house would be protected. And I am here to say, I lived a miracle. God is powerful, as is prayer. 8,000 acre forest fire. I hope that lady saved her cats. My goodness, she sounded worried. Um, and so a, I'm going to go with this. I like what the texture said. I, I wish I had, to, oh, it was Jasper. Thanks, Jasper. Um, I, I have a genital reveal party. So think of all the things that need to go right for a baby to be made, like all of the biology right? All of the biology that has to happen for a baby to be made. It's, rem it's amazing. And so we take all of that and then we have, uh, you know, a, a, a baby boy or a baby girl, and we're all excited to share that. Like you have to understand as a guy who's had kids finding out in advance, if it's a boy or a girl is just as exciting when they're born as it is when you find out in the office, right? So how come that of all of the bajillions of things that need to go right on a cellular level that's not enough we need pyrotechnics to celebrate this you get my point <laughs> oh only in california we need a smoke bomb in order to reveal that it's blue my god and why in the woods like why so close to a place where you can light a, a wildfire why not just a little uh, patio picnic right hey we mm. wanted to find out if we should paint the walls blue or pink let's fire these off in dry season all right, and celebrate the genitals of our unborn baby. It's weird. Anyway, that's what caused that fire that's burning. Now you know. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. I had conversations a little while ago about arenas, and arenas being adaptive to not even having sports. How about that? That some of the arena companies are looking at concerts and hockey games and all of these pieces of the puzzle. But there's one piece of the puzzle that has nothing to do with actual sports. Now, it depends who you ask. I might get some pushback on that. But it's true. It literally is true. At least maybe athletes and not sports. Maybe let's give it that grace. Joining me now to have a conversation that I think is strange. But it is very capitalist. And I love that because there is a growing market here. Victor Lee, he's the MRU eSports program instructor. He's co-founder of the Alberta eSports Association. Um, welcome, Victor. Thanks for spending some time with us here. Uh, I guess for most of the audience, we should probably start with what is esports. Yeah, sure. So esports stands for electronic sports. So it's similar to traditional sports, um, with the exception of obviously the lack of the physical um, component. But it shares a lot of similar qualities. To traditional sports. It's video games that are played in a com competitive environment. So there's prizes and competitions and an entire culture uh, and industry around that idea. Okay, so it's sports, just not sports. <laughs> yeah, it's esports. Right, and it's sports, just not athletes. Yeah, so we would use the moniker like an esports athlete or a pro gamer. Um, and being distinct between what's an esport and what's a traditional sport, although that term does tend to blur depending on yeah, who I you would, ask I and would, for what the activity is. 
I think as a guy who truly believes in athletes, I think I would, my contribution would be gamer. Yeah. Um, sounds really great. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, I think that that one sounds good. Yeah. It, it's important to make the distinction between someone who just plays uh, video games kind of casually or plays a game that's not in a competitive uh, environment versus someone mm-hmm. who's playing competitively um, in that kind of um, uh, environment. So there's a distinction. So that's why the term esports exists versus just video game player. Fair enough. And now this has turned into big business, billions of dollars up for grabs. And the part in the arenas is that they, these guys are looking at how do we seat people with massive screens? Because the sports part of this whole conversation is not really what's happening, but it is what's being consumed. Yes. Right. right. Uh, the, the audience is watching sports uh, almost like traditional sports. Mm-hmm. The, the creation of the game and the creation of and the users that are playing are not athletes. They are. It is not a sport they are playing. They are playing the video game part of it. But we as consumers, not to be forgotten here, we are consuming a sport by watching it because it looks <laughs> flipping real. And um, it's quite amazing what happens on the screen. So how big is this business, Victor? And um, why is uh, an esports management program necessary? Sure. So it shares a lot of similar qualities and in infrastructure to, to, to traditional sports, um, just replacing the activities. So I think the, the best parallel I can compare this to is like poker. You can tune into ESPN. You can watch poker. They're not sweating up there in a traditional sense. Um, you know, they're not running marathons, but um, it's still a skill-based um, competition. Um, they're competing for prize money. And uh, so with with regards to esports, um, to kind of tie it into traditional sports, uh, esports kind of hit the main markets in the early 2000s in South Korea with StarCraft, which was a really popular uh, real-time strategy game by Blizzard. And it was televised on cable networks, it was broadcasted, and it held in-person stadium events. So that was kind of the big spearhead for the esports industry at large. And so over the last five to 10 years, esports has kind of started to branch um, into other parts of the world, North America, Europe, Latin America, et cetera. So when we compare in terms of viewership and consumerism, when you look at, let's say, the 2019 Super Bowl, um, it had about 28.2 unique uh, million unique viewers. And then if you look at League of Legends, which is a very popular esports title, the 2019 League of Legends World Championships had 100 plus million views. So wow. there is a considerable level of viewership and consumerism and appetite within this space. And the reason that I'd like to say that it shares similar infrastructure to sports is a lot of the uh, the franchises and athletes within the sports space are kind of the first to kind of delve into this. So news outlets like ESPN, TSN, The Score are starting to cover esports. They have sections within their company that, and divisions within their company that cover uh, esports media. As well, there's uh, traditional sports franchises like the Golden State Warriors and retired NBA player Rick Fox, as well as Shaquille O'Neal, all have uh, stakes or teams within the esports organizations. So esports globally is a billion dollar industry. Um, the global audience is about half a billion viewers, and um, it's only going to increase the growth. So the intention with the esports management program. Well, I'm going I'm to get you. Oh, I'm going to hang on right <laughs> yeah. there. That that part is dynamite. Um, but I'm going to get you hold on right there because right. I want to be clear. I'm not dismissing this when I say they're not athletes. I just think that as we create this for everybody, we really need to create the distinction because it is a different talent set. These guys and girls who play these games are extremely talented. They are the elite of the elite of what they do. They truly are. Their motor skills and all of that stuff 
uh, tactile skills is beyond what most of us would ever accomplish in our lives. So there's no, I'm not denying that, but I, I don't want to call them athletes. And here's why is that curling used to not have athletes, but curling has athletes now because right. Golf was never athletes, but now they are definitely athletes now. Um, the one reason why, and this is my, you can tell me what you think, Victor. Yeah, sure. Here's why <laughs> never in our lives, uh, will we see the opposite of this in NHL 20, they take, uh, a hockey player, an NHL player, they put them on the cover of the video game. Never in our lives will they take a, a gamer from NHL 20 and put them on the cover of anything NHL, <laughs> right? There, there is definitely a very clear chicken and egg scenario today with this, right? That they, we know who the chicken is, we know who the egg is in this. But now this whole world is starting to blur a little mm -hmm. bit because there are new e-games that are coming out that are very sports-driven, um, modeled after sports, that there is no chicken anymore. There is no real sport in some of them anymore. And that's the remarkable part. That's the amazing part. So I think that we need to be clear that, yes, the athletes are the athletes, but these people are so talented and things are getting created that we've never seen before, which means these stars need structure in order to succeed. That's so right. that's where the program comes in. That's right. Yeah. So I think it's 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 pretty, uh, we want to be deliberate and clear that esports exists kind of as its own entity. So it's not so much an argument to, oh, like esports is a sport and try to, uh, encompass that within that industry yeah, and some um, people try to take it there and i yeah. just i that's why i want to be so clear because i don't even want to entertain that yeah the, the, the line sometimes blurs depending on the activity but uh but certainly that's kind of the case and that's why we're deliberate in that it's an esport um and that the the athletes themselves that are esports athletes and we want to make the distinction between someone who's just playing video games like you know bejeweled on your phone that's a game right but that's a dis that's a distinct uh space in comparison to if you're to compete um in like league of legends or in street fighter so mm -hmm. but that brings up a great point shane um because esports is kind of a new thing and legislation and, and regulations are all kind of developing as we go along um when a situation happens it's it, within the esports industry, it can be kind of difficult to define it. So a really great um, example of this, actually this brings it close to home in Alberta here, is there's a League of Legends professional uh, from Alberta named Danny Lee, and he got picked up by an esports team in the US. So he needs to go down to the US to compete as his career, except there wasn't really anything in place to kind of you know address that and regulate that. The only thing that's closest to that is the American P1A visa, which is intended for internationally recognized athletes. Um, but there isn't one for something in this context. So what they ended up doing was they actually, um, this Danny Lee actually was the very first person to receive the P1A visa, which is for internationally recognized athletes, but as a, as a pro gamer. So <laughs> there's some catching up to do with, with within other industries as well, certainly as this esports industry uh, emerges and grows. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to, the only thing I'm pushing back on you is the word athlete. And I realize you're just <laughs> doing your thing, mm -hmm. but because the definition of athlete is a person who is proficient in sports and other forms of physical exercise. So it's in the definition of athlete that physical exercise is part of it as defined. Yeah, definitely. So, definitely. right. So I, I, I'm always cautious on that. I'm not pushing back on you. I yeah, I know. But, uh, but, um, but this is exactly it. I mean, how can you give a visa to a guy who's not exactly uh, in physical exercise, but there is no definition for the guy. So you've got to find a solution somewhere. Yeah, there's a lot of catching a good up place to do, to for sure. There's a lot of catching yeah. up to do. Um, um, so Twitch contributes to this because they're streaming everything. Um, you know, it really is its own channel, its own um, mm -hmm. entertainment provider thing. So these guys, they need they need representation. And that's kind of where you kick in, hey? 
Yeah, that's right. So especially there's a lot of paradigms that are shifting um, alongside esports. And that's kind of the, the big basis to why esports is, is growing. And one of the big players in that is streaming and, and self-broadcasting. So instead of relying on a cable network um, to, to get your show across or to get your content across to, to large audiences, because of the internet and opportunities for you to, to stream on your own platform, um, you're able to kind of develop your own space and people can tune in and watch. So we have... Uh, professional players who may not be competing, but they're great at their craft or they're just creative and they, they're personable. Um, and they have a Twitch channel that can reach thousands and hundreds of thousands of uh, subscribers who would pay to, to, to subscribe to their channel to follow along and to watch their content. Um, mm -hmm. So this platform is a huge reason why um, the esports industry is growing as well. The tournaments themselves, the events are broadcasted on, on Twitch and on Facebook gaming and on YouTube. Um, and the now defunct mixer from from Microsoft. <laughs> Everything from Microsoft. Yeah, <laughs> but again, like these big tech companies are certainly huge players. Um, they see the growth, and obviously, it benefits them as well. And especially with the pandemic, with everything moving online, um, you know, gaming um, and this kind of environment is only starting to continue to grow. Well, there's no denying that, and there's no denying there's a market, and there's no denying that it's entertaining to watch. I mean, that was sort of found 10 years ago on YouTube. It really started. Mm -hmm. um, there was a guy back in the 90s. No, it was the 80s. Uh, he had to do a science project and went to school with him. And what he did was he, on his VHS recorder, recorded himself playing uh, that old Nintendo hockey game, whatever that was called. <laughs> um, and, he, um, and he video recorded it and took it as his project. And so really, if you had known that... 30 years or so ago, how far ahead he was of the curve. Um, it, it actually is a real thing. So how, tell me about the program now and, and how does it, because it's at MRU in Calgary. Sure. It's, there's going to be more of them. I mean, how do you pioneer this and what is it, what does it mean for the industry? For sure. So the, the esports management program, to be clear, is related to the business side of esports. So it's not a program for someone who's seeking to be a pro player um, in any capacity. It's more so for um, professionals who are looking to delve into this space. So um, it kind of parallels something like sports management, where there's a lot of shared components. You would need you know, a marketing team, event uh, broadcasters, event coordinators, um, tournament organizers, uh, and the whole nine yards. So the the program is part of Mount Royal University's continuing education uh, division. So that's a really flexible program. Um, it includes, you know, like home decor, event planning, entrepreneurship. Um, and it's it's offered as a way for new students as well as adults or existing businesses to branch out and enroll in a really flexible program. There's only four courses. It can be done in any order over the course of three years and it, you'll receive a certificate uh, with this program. So the, the, the program kind of covers the overview of esports culture and the industry, how it operates, um, the logistics and operations and, and the project management and event management that's involved with delivering events, as well as the marketing communications um, and, and information within the space and how to properly communicate that. So it's a, it's a brand new program uh, within Alberta. It's actually delivered in partnership with the University of California, Irvine, who are the, the that's the post-secondary institution that developed this program. So mm. we're the first within Alberta. Very cool. So and can you be an agent out of this? Because that seems to be the most lucrative, maybe a little law background, <laughs> be an esports agent, make a little dough. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I mentioned before, like we had a really talented player here in Alberta, but because there isn't an existing infrastructure here, they had to move down to the States, right? Um, so the goal with this is it kind of doubles both as an engineering management program, but also as an, as an or not engineering, sorry, <laughs> an esports management program, but as well as a esports entrepreneurship program as well, because the industry in Alberta um, exists at a grassroots level. You know, like right now we have events that fill uh, halls, 30,000 square feet halls. We get 500 plus uh, people competing, but on uh, the grand scheme of things, we're, we're still only at the grassroots level. Um, so in order to catch up to the rest of the world, um, we want to deliver this program. So students and existing businesses are able to obtain the, the skill sets necessary um, to be key players and leaders within the space as it emerges. Because it's already grown in other areas of Canada. Of course, it's grown in the States, especially in, in Asia and in Europe. So at this point, it's not so much as a matter of, with, of if, but uh, it's a matter of when. And we want to be there to capitalize on that time. How do I talk my kids into actually playing real <laughs> sports when we give them a future playing video games, Victor? This is not working. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm also a sports fan as well. I really love volleyball. I played badminton uh, my whole life. Um, but, um, but certainly the, with traditional sports uh, and with esports, there's, there's a lot of crossover um, in, sh in shared interests. It's not to say that if, if a kid is, is only into video games that they're not gonna pursue other interests. Certainly that sometimes might not be the case, um, but it's, it's great to kind of give them opportunities to pursue other things. And certainly in, in some situations where there's physical impairments, for example, I also have light asthma, so it's difficult to pursue certain types of traditional sports. Um, so when it comes to video games and esports, it opens a really uh, inclusive um, and accessible environment to kind of get the same um, experiences in terms of com um, competing, sharing uh, experiences with a community, meeting new people, um, and gaining the, the experiences that are attached to a competitive environment, the wins and losses, etc. Um, but in a different form. Okay, this is very dad old man. Forgive me. <laughs> Is that uh, this, this, you will have me sold. I mean, I, I, the capitalism part, I'm 100% in with you, Victor. If you can make it so my kids are on a treadmill or a, a stationary <laughs> bike and the electricity generated powers the video game unit, then I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> That's really creative. Might work. You never know. Victor Lee spending some time. Uh, it's, it's great pioneering, Victor, all jokes aside. And, uh, you know, playing uh, the antagonist here is, uh, you know, is really in fun to look at it from all the mm -hmm. perspectives. I, I think it's great. I mean, to create industry and to develop and grow and take advantage of something that's already there. I think it's fantastic. Victor Lee, MRU Esports Program Instructor, co-founder of the Alberta Esports Association. Good luck with your work. Okay. I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's great. <laughs> it really is great. Good luck. It was Thank nice you. talking to you. We will keep in touch. Talk to you soon. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.